So welcome to uh, the eighth seminar for September. This is the first seminar for uh, the fall, so we're happy to see you here. Everybody who is interested in continuing education credits, nursing, or physician, uh, this is the activity code for you to enter uh, to do that. And it works because I just did it. So um, uh, just a few announcements. Um, for, for nursing continuing education and for uh, physician continuing education, in order to get credit, you need to be here for 80% of the uh, lecture today. So uh, that's uh, a critical and aspect. And we're being videotaped. And you're being videotaped. <laughs> so they'll, uh, yeah, they'll, when you walk out the door, you'll, they'll know you're not here when you're leaving. Uh, Landing committee member Dr. Marsh is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences. He has no other uh, financial conflicts of interest. Uh, and our speaker today uh, is on the speaker bureau or at the past speaker bureau for, uh, yes, for Dallas. Uh, this is not ongoing at this time. Uh, she's done uh, a UTI and kidney uh, transplant and one liver vaccine uh, transplant uh, 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 CE program in the past. Uh, she has no other major conflicts of interest uh, uh, for this project program. So, uh, Rich, I'll let you take it. Great. Sure. So, it gives me real pleasure to introduce Emily. Um, so, I found out last night at dinner that um, she followed a similar path as one of our physicians, uh, Dr. Parsonet. So, she went to Princeton right after he did, and then NYU medical school um, as well, just a few years after. They didn't know each other, but uh, that's when they diverged. She went to Chicago and uh, did her residency, and then uh, Montefiore went and did her ID training, and then moved to Philadelphia and has since uh, stayed in Philadelphia and moved from Hahnemann over uh, to Penn, where she has uh, taken on uh, the transplant uh, program and fellowship uh, director uh, there as well. Um, she is uh, as accomplished as you can be. Um, there are 100 publications. She is uh, a driver of transplant ID um, uh, communities of practice, of practice guidelines. She is uh, unassuming and gracious in her care, but a strong advocate for good care algorithms and for mentorship and research uh, and teaching. She's a master educator uh, in the, at Penn as well, and a real uh, pleasure just to, to be around and to, to have here. She had, I, I knew there was a hook to get her here. Her daughter was a Dartmouth undergrad, um, and so I knew she might like to uh, come back up and see, although we weren't able to recruit her daughter to our medical school, she actually went to Philadelphia. Um, uh, she, uh, we were able to bring her up here to give this talk, and she's worked uh, a lot in Hep C and HIV and transplant uh, as well. So she's going to talk to us today about HIV and transplant. So thanks. For Thank you so much. Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be up here. Um, I felt like this warm feeling as the Dartmouth coach pulled into Hanover, and so I just really appreciate the invitation um, and the kind introduction. Um, these are my disclosures. I'm supposed to say this is my final year on the ABM Subspecialty Board Test Committee, and I'm not allowed to reveal any test groups. There probably won't be any related to this anyway. 
Um, <laughs> so in 1997, when I was first starting to get interested in transplantation in a, a major way, um, I got a phone call from a physician in San Francisco asking me about trying to advocate for their patient who is HIV and hep C co-infected, dying of liver failure. And they said, you know, we think he could be, do well with transplantation. At, at the time, I was taken aback because what we saw in the literature, which was not much, looked pretty dismal. And I said, well, I guess this would qualify as research. And I think if you could find somebody to do this as research, like maybe this could happen. Um, I'm really happy to say that 20 years later, it's very clear that what we thought couldn't happen has in fact become a reality, and that is that we now talk about just not can patients be transplanted, but how can we best manage those individuals with HIV. It's pretty clear there's a huge need for this. When we look at the HIV epidemic, worldwide, there are greater than 33 million individuals who are infected, and amazingly, there's a tremendous intersection with end-organ disease. If we look at HIV-infected individuals, between 4 and 20 percent have some evidence of chronic kidney disease, and there are certainly many millions of patients co-infected with hepatitis viruses that lead to end-stage liver disease. So there's no question that the patients are there who really would benefit from transplant. But I think we're even starting to realize that there's actually some substantial cardiac disease in our HIV-infected individuals, and that this may, too, prompt the need for consideration for transplantation. And while perhaps as we change our sort of outlook in terms of how we manage people, what medications, how we manage sort of the cofactors that lead to ischemic cardiac disease, we're starting to actually get calls for heart transplantation as well. Now, is it reasonable? I think we've gotten past the point of whether this is reasonable because clearly the outcomes in individuals who undergo transplantation who are HIV infected actually are pretty equivalent to those of individuals without HIV. And this is data from the multi-center NIH study that's actually already six years old now in publication, which means it's certainly a lot older in terms of patient enrollment. And we can look at one, three, and now five-year survivals and see that they're really quite equivalent. Importantly, if we contrast for kidney patients the option of dialysis versus transplantation, what we see is transplantation is also a better option than dialysis for these individuals as well. And so it's important to recognize that we're actually doing something important when we recognize chronic kidney disease in our HIV-infected patients and start to move them towards transplantation. We know that not everybody does well, and we're starting to develop an appreciation for those factors that may be important. And one of the key factors that's going to be important in outcomes is clearly donor selection. And choosing sort of marginal donors for these individuals gives us marginal results. And so the older donor or the donor who's at greater risk for delayed graft function will lead to worse results. One of the other factors that's clearly played a role in long-term outcomes is hepatitis C. And when we look at just HIV-positive individuals, 
versus the standard pool of patients in transplantation, what we can see here is that HIV positivity alone actually leads to outstanding outcomes, but those individuals with HCV, either co-infected or mono-infected, clearly do worse following kidney transplantation. How about in liver transplantation? Well, it turns out that, again, individuals who have HIV, who undergo liver transplantation for any cause other than hepatitis C, actually do quite well and look very similar to those of our other liver transplant patients. Hepatitis C has posed quite a challenge, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. Clearly, though, if we compare hepatitis C-infected patients to patients with hepatitis B, the hepatitis B patients do better. And so there's no issues really transplanting individuals with Hep B co-infection. What about heart transplantation? Well, that's a little harder to know because so few centers do heart transplants and the numbers are still really, really tiny. But on the limited data that we have, and in the U.S., most of this is coming from Columbia in New York, which is the largest single center experience, what we see is that actually these patients do reasonably well as well and comparable to those of their uninfected um, companions. When we first started thinking about transplanting individuals with HIV, the biggest mental roadblock that those of us in ID had to get past was the issue of what was going to happen to their HIV. Were they going to progress? What was going to happen to their immunologic profiles? Would they have a lot more AIDS-defining illnesses? You know, were we really going to do them a disservice by compounding their immune deficiencies? And the first and clearest um, signs that we've had, and this has been across the world as people transplant, is that HIV disease progression is extraordinarily rare in our individuals who we transplant. Generally speaking, there's minimal problems in terms of control of viremia. HIV-defining events look just like the rest of the population, so we see some opportunistic infections, but not at any greater incidence than we see in individuals who are HIV uninfected. Now the CD4 count issue though is a little bit complicated. Clearly for individuals who get transplanted with HIV, CD4 count diminution really correlates primarily with the choice of immune suppression. And as we start to go more and more towards more um, intensive immune suppression upfront for our kidney patients, primarily the use of anti-thymocyte globulin, what we see is we see profound and prolonged decreases in CD4 counts. And we've had patients whose CD4 counts have remained below 200 for over two to three years. And this is actually the experience also of the patients on the initial NIH trial. And so your choice of immune suppression may drive your CD4 count. But what's interesting is this is not driven infections. And so when we look at this, the infection profile for opportunistic infection have really not mirrored either what patients had pre-transplant or been increased in our individuals who get thymoglobulin. That's not to say, though, that these patients don't get infections post-transplant. And in fact, they probably do have a slightly higher incidence of bacterial infections than we see in our HIV uninfected patients, although typically, these bacterial infections occur early as they do 
with our HIV uninfected patients, and they may be increased in patients who get either transplanted for hepatitis C or transplanted with hepatitis C, or patients receiving thymoglobulin. So that anti-thymocyte globulin piece probably factors more into bacterial infections than it does in individuals um, in terms of opportunistic infections. And what we can see here, this is actually data from a Spanish study where they actually looked at the bacterial infections. And as with other transplant patients, the most common time frame for bacterial infections was really in the first month, which makes sense. That's when they're in the hospital having all of these additional interventions. That's when they may have surgical site infections. And then as we move past that, the risk goes down, but over time there's still this constant rate of bacterial infections, not unlike that which we might see in our other recipients. What are the risk factors for this? Well, at least in liver transplantation, the risk factors probably have something to do with how sick patients are going into transplant. Now, in the United States, I don't know a single center that's transplanting patients with MELD scores that are less than 15, because we can't get organs for people who are not critically ill. So that's sort of irrelevant for us, but this was a Spanish study, so I think they were able to transplant under different circumstances. Clearly, individuals who had had more complex cases going into transplant seemed to be at greater risk. And clearly, patients with hepatitis C, or who had sort of non-standard immune suppression. One of the biggest confounders, and something we're still trying to parse out, is what's the role of anti-thymocyte globulin. In these initial studies, it really looked like anti-thymocyte globulin played a role in terms of severe bacterial infections and severe infections post-transplant. Now, it's hard to know what to make out of very large database studies because there's always missing pieces. But at least in this one study that looked at a combination of Medicare factors, Medicare databases, as well as the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, so the big transplant database, it appears that the risk from having thymoglobulin perhaps is not as great as people initially assumed, and that it still may be reasonable to consider this. Interestingly, there's some data that suggests that hypogammaglobulinemia may play a role in these individuals. Now, this is something that people have looked at in transplant patients for a long time, is whether or not being hypogammaglobulinemic <coughs> increases your risk of infection. And so um, Kevin Gregg and people from the University of Chicago actually um, decided they were going to look at this and try to sort through with the NIH cohort whether or not acquired hypogammaglobulinemia may promote infection. And actually, at least in this sort of dive into the NIH cohort, they were able to show that profound hypogammaglobulinemia may play a role if in fact causing infection after transplant. So I think we could say that patients with HIV who undergo transplantation probably don't look that different from our other transplant recipients. They don't have more opportunistic infections, they do have bacterial infections, and their highest risk period is early. So it seems like that's good. Maybe we can just stop there, proceed with transplantation, not worry. It turns out it's not quite so simple, and probably the biggest issue 
And the biggest issue we're going to have moving forward is a very high risk of rejection. Now, in general, following transplantation, we pretty much know what rejection rates are going to be. And so in most kidney programs, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% or so over a period of time, with most rejection occurring in the first year, most acute rejection. In liver transplant patients, we usually see rejection rates of maybe about 5%, again, with the most significant events occurring with acute cellular rejection early. And what's been pretty clear in the HIV populations pretty much globally is that rejection rates are two to three-fold when compared with other patients, and that reflects both kidney and liver transplantation. And interestingly enough, these are individuals who are not necessarily losing their graft, but having really significant <coughs> events occurring, and particularly um, post-transplant. Most of these rejection rates are cellular rather than humoral rejection, but there's a higher incidence of difficulty in response rates with steroids, so that's unusual for this. And what's especially notable is the fact that in most transplant settings, the rejection actually is really highest in the first year, and in the HIV patients, this rejection risk just keeps going. And we'll see acute cellular rejection much further out than we would otherwise anticipate seeing it, leading to this overall higher cumulative risk of rejection. Why is this? And this is actually sort of an unanswered question still, but I'm going to share with you some of the thoughts that people had about why people might develop rejection in the post-transplant setting and why this might happen more in HIV-infected individuals. The first thought was we were just using the wrong immune suppression. That because we were so concerned about the risk of opportunistic infections in these patients and, you know, progression of HIV, we weren't using our standard immune suppression. And so whereas in most kidney programs, you guys use CAMPATH, we use thymoglobulin, you use very strongly um, lympholytic therapies, we weren't doing that for the HIV patients. And so people worried about that. And in fact, it's pretty clear that the choice of agent may matter, but it's not the full explanation. And so there clearly needs to be more thought about what's happening here. So then people thought, well, maybe it has to do with the pharmacokinetics of the drugs we're using. So all of the initial transplants had a much higher incidence of use of protease inhibitors. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But protease inhibition clearly had a dramatic impact on the pharmacokinetics of the standard immune suppression we were using, especially calcineurin inhibitors. And so people thought, well, when you looked at the area under the curve for all of these individuals in terms of their immune suppression, we had changed it so much that maybe we were seeing that impact. There was also this sense that maybe we were choosing, most of the patients earlier who were chosen earlier were people who had lived with HIV for 20 years or more. They were really long-term survivors. And so maybe we just had a recipient pool that was more at risk for rejection. Certainly when we were treating hepatitis C, we were using a lot of interferon in these early days, and that also increased the risk. But I think the thing that people are now really starting to think most about 
is actually what's going on immunologically in HIV patients that may be different. And so there are a number of theories which I'm going to share with you just to sort of tell you where people are starting to think about this. And that is that perhaps there's some immune activation which may either be allosensitization to HLA molecules due to HIV or some expansion of memory cells which leads to increased T cell responsiveness and a nonspecific enhancement of alloimmunity. Or maybe there's just some cross-reactivity to prior infections that have occurred. And so I think where we're starting to move is in the direction of thinking more deeply about what's going on immunologically. And that's going to be the focus of research moving forward in these big multi-center trials. There's also another interesting thing that has actually come up. And that is, it turns out that despite the fact that we're transplanting people who are aviremic with kidneys, for example, that have come from HIV-negative donors, there's clearly reinfection of the kidneys in a way that seems to mimic patterns of either rejection or patterns of other sort of CKD manifestations. And that in some of these patients, there may be something very specific to the way HIV reinfects the donor organ that may also trigger this process. Now, interestingly enough, people have tried to preliminarily to look at things, and one of the big concerns has been when we use a donor pool that has a lot of patients, a lot of donors who have APOL1 genotypes, or when we transplant people with HIV-associated nephropathy who also may be APOL1, that maybe that may play a role. But it turns out probably that's not the mechanism. So people are still working on trying to sort through that. So rejection's a big issue and the focus. The second issue that's really driven all of the data we have to date, but actually is going to be of historical interest five years from now, is the issue of hep C. When we look at pretty much all data regarding outcomes, one of the biggest drivers of bad outcomes is hep C co-infection. And it's pretty clear that when we look at an HIV uninfected individual who we transplant for hep C, that they become cirrhotic again over a period of 8 to 12 years. In HIV-infected individuals, we see fibrosing cholestatic hepatitis and cirrhosis occurring in one to two years in some of the patients. When we look across the board, regardless of where you look, whichever study you look at, outcomes are clearly worse in individuals, and that's true in liver transplantation especially. And you can see here on different studies that this is the case. But when people look at this a little more closely, they find that not all individuals with hep C are the same. And so there have been some risk factors that have actually been associated that separate out different populations of people with hep C and different transplant characteristics. And so one of the things we've learned that the donor choice in a hep C infected recipient is especially important. And if you use a hep C positive donor, which is something we routinely use for hep C positive um, recipient candidates in, who are not HIV infected, that seems to portend to decrease survival, as does an older donor age. We also know that the recipients who go into transplant who are more malnourished, who are sicker, who have HCV genotype 1, also did more poorly 
and people who had multi-organ transplanted more poorly. One of the other factors that seemed to play a role, at least in the initial studies, was that centers that were less used to doing this also had worse outcomes. Now, there are a number of issues driving the death, but probably the most important really is hep C recurrence with the development of a more rapid progression to fibrosing cholestatic hepatitis. And that for individuals where you could clear the hepatitis C pre-transplant, this was protective and we wouldn't see this. So it was clearly something related to active viral infection. But there seemed to be a, um, a situation where if you actually took somebody with hep C and they developed rejection and you treated the rejection, they did much worse. And individuals who had later reintroduction of antiretrovirals also did worse. And what you can see here is just the fact that people can be stratified in terms of HIV and hep C co-infection. But one of the issues that feeds into this is that patients with hepatitis C may do worse not just because of rejection issues and fibrosing cholestatic hepatitis, but they may also experience other comorbidities. And one of the key comorbidities that they appear to develop is chronic kidney disease. And so when they looked again back at the NIH database and went back into it, they found that the cumulative incidence of chronic kidney disease was clearly greater for patients with co-infection. And that what was especially significant was these patients were developing not mild chronic kidney disease, but a substantial number of them were actually developing kidney disease that was in the range of leading to dialysis. So you would say, okay, well, why was that such a problem? Why weren't patients just treated? And it turns out that in the initial days, people weren't treating these patients because there were some early reports of spontaneous clearance of hepatitis C in the HIV hep C co-infected cohort. But then people realized, well, that was actually clearly not the norm, and we should be treating them. But we mostly just had interferon and ribavirin, which had very low response rates, even lower than in the general population, with a lot of complications, including prompting of rejection. And so we started to reserve this treatment for only those people who we clearly saw progressing. But that's all changed. And that's why this is really going to be of historic interest, is because now we have directly active antiviral agents. And while one of the first trials in HIV really had to do with cefosfavir lidipasphere, you know, it's very clear that these great response rates we're now seeing with other genotypes and other agents. Um, we actually looked at our own um, data with another center in Philadelphia, uh, Drexel, where we compared how our patients were doing following kidney transplantation or liver transplantation who were actually being treated for hepatitis C. And these were all getting subosphere, lidipasphere. And what we found was that they did great. They had early virologic responses. They had sustained virologic responses. And at the time of this um, compilation of data, we had one who had, wasn't quite at sort of a long-term cure assessment, but everybody had responded easily well with really minimal side effects and no rejection issues. And 
There have now been other studies that have been published that show that these patients can be easily treated. And so I think that we're going to say hepatitis C was interesting, but we're past it. Let's move on to other challenges. So what are the other challenges? One of the other concerns is we know that transplant patients are at greater risk for malignancies. There's some sense that this decrease in immune surveillance when you give people immune suppression may play a role. We know that HIV patients have a higher malignancy profile as well. So people have looked at this in the study. And again, there are clearly malignancies, but they don't seem out of proportion to what we see in other individuals. Now notably, one of the malignancies that we see a lot of in transplantation, especially in our liver transplant candidates, is hepatocellular cancer. And so people have actually said, well, what about your patients now with HIV and hepatocellular cancer? Is that a reasonable thing? Are they going to be at higher risk for recurrences and, you know, metastatic spread? And it turns out this is something that now people are doing commonly, expectedly, because the outcomes have really been equivalent to the other patients we transplant with hepatocellular cancer. Um, there are some factors that predict recurrences, and notably they're similar to those with other individuals, and that has a lot to do with tumor characteristics, especially vascular invasion, hep C co-infection, and, and larger tumor size. Now, let's say you actually lose the allograft, though, and we have had patients who've lost allografts following, you know, transplantation in HIV, it turns out that many of these individuals are actually suitable candidates for retransplantation. And in particular, individuals who are HCV RNA negative and where you're retransplanting greater than a month later seem to do better. And so it's clear that we can consider retransplanting patients if they fail treatment, fail transplant the first time around. So, there are some other things that we have to consider, and one of the biggest hurdles that we had to get through, and it's still a hurdle to some extent, is the issue of drug interactions. Um, many of our patients are on protease inhibitor-based therapy, especially your long-term survivors who've been doing well. Um, some of the new multi-drug uh, form co-formulations that use cobacistat also pose the same issue. And the issue is that they decrease the metabolism of calcineurin inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors, such as sirolimus. And these are mainstays of many transplant programs in terms of long-term immune suppression. And the problem is the drug interactions are such that you're asking patients to take doses of immune suppression that are almost impossible to remember. So we'll have patients who are on a half a milligram of tacrolimus every 10 days. Or it's hard to do. You have to keep a calendar, and then you have to know when they're going to be able to come to clinic to get their labs drawn. It's very challenging. And so we know that this is a huge issue and something that has been very difficult in terms of this. So we've been trying now to push more and more where it's getting away from these protease inhibitor-based regimens and from regimens that include cobacistin. 
because there is this concern about whether in the long term we're going to be able to adequately immune suppress them with the drugs we have now. So we've been switching a lot of people to dolutegravir if we have enough information about that. But one of the problems is that parts of one, the backbones for some of these therapies have included tenofovir. So tenofovir is an agent that we're all familiar and is associated with long-term renal issues and bone loss. And bone loss in transplantation is especially important because many of these patients are also on long-term corticosteroids. And so the metabolic complications we see are substantial, the fracture rates and other issues related to osteoporosis are really pretty substantial. And so there was always this sort of concern about whether it was rational to use tenofovir-based therapies. But I think we're kind of getting past that, too, with the newer formulation of tenofovir, alafenamide, which allows us to now give a safer option, and if your insurance company will actually, you know, approve it, which we found that saying, oh, they are a kidney transplant patient and they're at risk for CKD and bone loss, that we've actually been doing pretty well getting some of the newer formulations approved. Um, we also are trying to debate whether or not um, we should be using a back of ear in some of these patients because of cardiac issues, but we've not stopped using it, so um, we're continuing to use it. There's been a lot of interest in Maraviroc, a lot of interest. And in fact, this is predicated on the fact that um, there was some preliminary data that showed that immunologically CCR5 blockade may actually also somehow translate into a reduced um, immune responsiveness to the graft, so decreased rejection, and in the stem cell population, decreased graft versus host disease. And so there's been a lot of interest in this, and this is actually now the focus of the current NIH trial that we're just about to start enrolling in, is a trial that's going to look at the use of CCR5 blockade. The other drug that people have been really <coughs> interested in from an HIV standpoint that's an immune suppressive is an mTOR inhibitor, sirolimus. And it does appear, possibly, very preliminarily, and maybe won't be borne out in the long run, that using sirolimus leads to lower proviral DNA, and RNA rather, and this may actually wind up decreasing in some way the reservoir of HIV for whatever that means. This is done in a way on bank samples that it may ultimately prove to be false. But it's sort of an intriguing issue, and so people are now going to be prospectively looking at the role of sirolimus. Now, okay, so we've solved all the problems. We're ready to transplant, but the question becomes, where are the donors coming from? And for those of us who work in transplant as a full-time job, What's pretty clear is we do a small number of transplants per year, and we have a huge number of people on the list, many of whom are dying. And many people don't, we don't really know how many have HIV, but the one thing we do think is that the weightless mortality for HIV-positive individuals is probably disproportionately high. We don't know why that is. We don't know if it's that they're not coming to transplant evaluation until it's too late, some people don't consider them at all, or whether they, some other comorbidity issue. But it seems very disproportionately high. And this has brought us now to the situation where we're starting to consider 
whether or not we should be using HIV-positive organ donors for HIV-positive recipients. So back in 2004 or 2005, a very proactive, forward-thinking transplant surgeon in South Africa named Elmi Muller looked around her. And South Africa, as you're all aware, has had some really interesting takes on HIV over the years. One of the things that they had at that point was the refusal to dialyze any patient with HIV. So all the patients with HIV who developed CKD were guaranteed to die. And Elmi looked at this, she thought this was a tremendous injustice, and she saw that there were a number of people with HIV who were young, otherwise without substantial comorbidities, who were dying for other reasons, traumatic deaths, whatever. And in any other world, they would have been, without HIV, considered ideal organ donors. And so she proposed to her hospital that they allow her to actually consider doing transplants with HIV-positive donors. And they allowed her to do four, and the results actually were really pretty good. And so from that, she has grown an experience the, what she's published here is this experience with 29 patients um, in South Africa, but in fact, she's done about 38 as of like four months ago. And so it's not a huge experience, but it's an interesting experience and, you know, to some extent reflects what was happening in South Africa and some parts that are still happening in South Africa in terms of HIV which is that these are often donors who haven't seen antiretrovirals. The donors and recipients share a lot of uh, homogeneity, and so there was not really an issue of resistance to antiretrovirals. And the outcomes actually in patients and grafts were good. Her rejection rates were sort of similar in terms of 22% in three years, which is kind of about what we're looking at. And she, the results have been good. So. Based on this, there was a lot of movement in the HIV treating community and the transplant community to actually allow us to consider this in the United States. So what you may not be aware of is there's actually a law on the books in the U.S. that said transplanting patients with HIV-infected organs is against the law. And so that was actually on the books until November 7th, uh, 2013, or November, well, November 2013, when President Obama signed a law that allowed for research clearing the way for HIV-positive organ donation. And you can see here, this is the signing, everybody's happy, um, November 22nd. So I have to say one thing. This is in research settings, and there have been a tremendous debate, and it actually took them almost two years to put together the allowable conditions for this. Um, and if you're curious about it, those were published on November 25, 2015, on the uh, NIH website and the Federal Registry. And basically, this is a very dense document that specifies a lot of different considerations, including medical considerations for how to risk stratify HIV-positive donors, looking at things with drug interactions, looking at rejection issues, um, viral impairment of organ uh, function, as well as some potential unintended 
consequences, one of which would include unintended transmission events if the organ somehow winds up in the wrong body. They also specified a lot of issues in terms of consent and patient autonomy, but felt that very strongly that this was important to destigmatize HIV and to consider expanding the donor pool. They wanted this to occur in hospitals that have experience doing this, and so there are a lot of transplant hospital requirements, including both established programs for HIV care and HIV transplant, and biohazard programs for inadvertent exposures. They also put in a lot of responsibilities for the organ procurement organizations, and notably, the one thing they didn't do was put a lot of restrictions on the deceased donors. So there was a huge debate about this in the community. Some of us felt that there should be some restrictions, but in the end, they actually had almost none. And so there's no viral load requirement, there's no CD4 requirement. They don't want an active opportunistic infection, but there's no requirements in terms of past opportunistic infection. They do want pre-implantation biopsies. They said, once you do this, we would like to know outcome measures in both the candidates, so the people who never make it to transplant, the donors, obviously they're mostly dead, but, um, but in terms of what they look like as a pool and what's happening with the recipients. So everybody's been interested, like how good a solution is this for the organ donor shortage for HIV patients who are dying on the list? And so several groups, including our own, have tried to get at this question. Is this like a good solution? And so Brian Boyarski from Hopkins did the first evaluation, and he actually looked at two databases, one that's not an HIV-focused database, the NIS database, and one which is HIV-focused. And he sort of went down the list of using this, querying it to try to figure out, and he came up with about 500 possible potential organ donors per year. They then have gone back and redone this analysis, getting some OPO data, and they now think maybe it's a much greater pool of 2,500 organs. It's hard to know what the organ pool would look like from his analyses just because we actually don't, are missing huge numbers of data, but we know that in general there is probably either a really high rate of co-infection with hepatitis C or a really low one, but some hepatitis C, probably some hepatitis B. Um, and probably um, um, some amount of intravenous drug use in the, in the past. Um, in Philadelphia, we said, well, what does this really mean? Like, let's try to get it, answer this question a different way. And so we actually came at it from a different approach. And we looked, um, we developed a research collaborative in our city where we actually took several of the biggest treating HIV clinics in the city, and we said, let's look at all the patients you have on your books over a five-year period and say, how many patients have died? And let's look at their causes of death and whether they might have been organ donors. So coming at it from a different way. And we tried to re, you know, reflect the highest incidence of clinics as well as clinics that were in places where we thought people might be more likely to have events in their lives, like being subject to the Knife and Gun Club, that might make them organ donors. And so this was the display of where the, our centers were. And then we went back and we sort of took them along the trail of what led to their death. 
to find out who actually died in a hospital with a brain death who would have been qualifying as otherwise a standard criteria donor. In our group, we came up with 13 potential HIV-positive deceased donors out of a group of about 500 deaths. Now, admittedly, this was about 55% of the deaths in Philadelphia over that time, so take it as you will. There was a lot of comorbidities in our patients, so a lot of diabetics, a lot of hypertensives, half the group had hepatitis C, some of them were already cirrhotic, which meant they could only be a kidney donor. But interestingly, as you would expect with all these people in care, their CD4 counts were good, and they were otherwise pretty well controlled. About two of the 13 had clear resistance mutations. So we said, well, what does this mean for our city, and what does it mean for the country? And ultimately, we came up with a national extrapolation to about 356 donors per year. So not quite as much as the other, um, but what was disturbing to us was that we, when we looked at the quality of these donors, they didn't quite look as rosy because of their many comorbidities and the fact that people with HIV now are living lives that actually allow them to get all the other things that the rest of the American public has. So diabetes, you know, chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease. And so maybe this will be a great pool, and we're wrong. Or maybe it'll be an okay pool with some patients not really being as good donors as possible. And the same was true with liver, although probably the bigger issue with liver was the hep C co-infection, and that will probably be a thing of the past. So can these donors be used? I think there are a lot of questions that are going to hopefully be answered, and Hopkins is going to lead a multi-center U01 study. They're in the process of sort of putting that together now, and I think it'll be really interesting. Um, we're going to look to see will it be more rejection if you actually use individuals who are already um, at higher risk potentially um, as donors. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if you have a recipient who's not an ApoL1 genotype and you give them a kidney from an ApoL1 genotype. Are you going to see more HIV-associated nephropathy down the road? That'll be interesting to know. We hope there are no inadvertent transmissions, but transplantation has never been perfect, and there have been inadvertent transmissions of lots of other things in the past, and maybe that will happen with this. We actually have no idea how much it's going to cost. We know that currently kidney transplantation is a more cost-effective measure for pretty much anybody with CKD than remaining on dialysis, and we assume this will be true for HIV patients, but we don't know. We don't know if HIV patients are going to want these organs, but I think having talked to my patients, many of them would rather than stay on dialysis. We don't know if we have to worry about transmitted opportunistic or other infections. And since there's no CD4 requirement, we may potentially inadvertently transmit those. And we don't know whether it will matter whatever their history of OIs are. We know that it's going to, we're going to be seeing more hepatitis C, but I think we will probably not worry so much about that in that we know that we're going to have more and more pan-genotypic options over the next five to ten years, and that the issue will be mostly cost. Um, one of the focuses of the U01 is probably going to be looking at a lot of HIV-specific considerations, 
and this ability to now look at HIV superinfection and how that factors into the viral reservoir and how we may see changes with that. We know that people will be looking a lot at resistance patterns and whether we're going to be transmitting more resistant um, strains or require changes. Like I said we're trying to get away from using protease inhibitors and we don't know if using these donors are going to allow us to do that in the same way. Although as we're starting to be able to think about doing resistance testing on viral reservoirs, maybe we'll be able to come up with something that's a little more useful. Um, we worry a lot about drug interactions as we choose these therapies. And I'm going to show you an interesting thing from Switzerland recently to give you a sense of that. Um, and I talked about the opportunistic infections. We know in organ transplantation there's going to be a lot of limitations to what we're going to know because there's already a lot of limitations in our donor pool. So we don't know how much information we'll know at the time of transplant. And so this is going to be an issue to consider. One of the biggest controversies is whether or not we're going to be able to use live donors, especially for kidneys. And there's been tremendous debate about what is the risk of CKD in HIV and can we stratify that? And actually in this um, abstract that was presented recently in American Transplant Congress, they do say that there are some factors that perhaps can be used to stratify risk if you're considering live donation. Many people thought we should not allow live donors in this initial pass. Um, but actually, that wasn't what the NIH decided in the end. So I think our center probably won't, but many centers will probably consider the use of live kidney donors. Um, you're probably all aware that Hopkins announced their first transplants back in March, and those patients are doing well since that time. Mount Sinai has done two kidney transplants, and so far, preliminarily, they're all doing well. There have been some interesting issues in terms of antiretroviral <coughs> management, and I think we learned the most about this from this study that was actually, this is the first patient transplanted in Switzerland, and they actually had the longest follow-up, because when they published this a couple of months ago, they already had six months of follow-up. And because of the way the Swiss healthcare system works, they actually were able upfront to compare resistance patterns in their donor and recipient over years, and the donor had been HIV infected for like 20 years. And so they were actually able to do this. This was a liver transplant. And so they were able to really take a deeper look at have choice of antiretrovirals and move forward <coughs> that way and make some changes um, and really prepare for this because they have greater access to medical records. So it'll be interesting to see. I do want to bring up one unintended but benefit of the HOPE Act, which is now there's this question of false positive HIV tests in occasional nucleic acid testing in donors. And the HOPE Act wound up allowing them already to use several patients they would never have used as donors because of positive NATs. And we actually had looked at this a few years ago where we had in our OPO they had switched platforms for nucleic acid testing and they got a bunch of people with non-repeatable NATs. And so they actually wound up with six individuals who then ultimately, because of non-repeat NATs, non-repeat positives, were actually used for donation and um, wound up providing 27 organs to 26 recipients who also did well. And so I think the HOPE Act is going to give us hope in a different way, which may be wasn't intended, but valuable. 
So, okay. So I think hopefully you'll see that all of this is sort of in the future and in the present, transplanting these patients. What does it mean practically now? Well, I think we need to start thinking about this. As you look around the patients who you're treating with HIV, we think that this is a very reasonable thing to consider, and it's reasonable for those patients with stable HIV. And so there are CD4 counts that we currently have used and everybody's pretty much accepting, which are greater than 200 for kidney or heart or lung recipients and greater than 100 for livers because they tend to be more leukopenic. They need to have suppressible HIV RNA, if not now, then predictably so. And they need to have evidence of immune reconstitution if they've had opportunistic infection. Um, Pre-transplant, we in transplantation believe that every pre-transplant candidate needs to be looked at critically in terms of infection risk post-transplant because there's a lot you can do before they ever get to transplant that may help. And that includes, from an HIV standpoint, nutritional assessments, antiretrovirals, immunizations, and hep C treatment. We know that we need to consider our donors. And we know right now we're using lifelong pneumocystis prophylaxis. We don't know if that's really necessary, but we're doing that. Toxoprophylaxis, some requirement for mycobacterial prophylaxis in the highest risk individuals. Prevention of TB needs to be considered as appropriate and other infections. We're a little more aggressive with secondary prophylaxis for patients with history of histoplasmosis and especially for coccidioides. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of vaccination. These patients should be appropriately immunized pre-transplant. We've discovered, as have many, probably you have too, that patients go to dialysis units, you think they're getting vaccinated, and often that hasn't happened, or if they're getting vaccinated, it's not with appropriate vaccines. And so it's really important to think about that and to maintain updating. I think in the near future, we'll probably have a, the, uh, the new varicella zoster vaccine, new zoster vaccine that allows for a non-live virus vaccine to be able to use that. Um, and ultimately, we have to be very attuned to issues of rejection and recognize that organ dysfunction is multifactorial and needs to be aggressively evaluated. Um, and if those individuals are going to need protease inhibitors, some people think it may be worth doing some pre-transplant pharmacokinetic modeling to figure out kind of where their dosing needs to be. So I think we're at a point where we can accept doing this, and we have some challenges to look forward to, especially rejection and reinfection, and really expanding this to people in need of heart and lung transplantation. Ultimately, I think our biggest challenge is going to be barriers to access, identifying patients in need in a timely fashion, and identifying appropriate donors. So with that, I will conclude. Penn isn't quite as beautiful as Dartmouth, but I found the prettiest picture I could find. This is Philadelphia in the spring. Looks kind of nice, although clearly when I look out at my window, most of the time I just see other buildings, so it's not that exciting. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. I have a question for you about the transplant list when HIV positive donors go on the list. So if you're a HIV positive potential recipient, you now have access to two pools of uh, potential uh, graphs. And some of them might have a better kind of 
donor demographic profile than the HIV positive yeah. ones. And so how will that work? So what will happen is the you'll be offered, so if an HIV positive donor comes up, that donor will be allocated to the top person on the list with HIV who has accepted that. But if you're on the list and a sort of standard criteria organ becomes available sooner, you're going to get offered whatever comes up first. And so there will still, in most cases, be transplantation with HIV uninfected organs because we're not sure how well this process is going to work and how it's a lot of work for the organ procurement organizations right now to get everything in place to do this so I think for the foreseeable future in the places that are going to have this up and running there will still be some roadblocks that will make it a little more problematic in some states it's still not totally legal and so they're getting past some other additional hurdles um, so it's, it's, they, they will get offers from both pools, potentially. Um, whenever a candidate is offered an organ, they can turn the organ down. And so we advise them not to. But um, people will sometimes say, oh, no, I, for whatever reason, I don't want to do this now. Um, and then they go back on the list, and you hope they're still alive the next time an organ offer comes around. But, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. One of the big concerns is just making sure for busy OPOs that the organ goes to the right person. But um, yeah. And just following up on the positive um, transplants, um, how do you do the evaluation of appropriate antiretroviral therapy if you don't have, as you say, people who are longer term survivors? You usually not going to have all the information right. like, and there could easily be scenarios where you put the two resistance profiles together from the two patients over time, and there's no active therapy for right. the patient. So how, how do you incorporate that into so your So I think one of the biggest challenges to transplanting using HIV-positive donors in the United States. And it's also one of the reasons that some people felt very strongly that there should be no donor requirement for prior antiretroviral. It's because some people thought, well, that would give them an opportunity to better understand that. Now, um, I'm not really sure how this is going to work because some of these patients will get accurate histories, but some of them, it's pretty clear, will know nothing. And I'm sure. You know, everybody here has those patients who have seen every antiretroviral, and you don't really know how much of it was resistance, how much of it was intolerant, how much of it was like, oh, this one's just like a better therapy now, or how much of it was just happenstance. And I do worry about that. I'm not sure. that The Hopkins trial um, that's going to be nationwide, at least for them, and possibly for more, they're going to be able to do some sort of deep sequencing to actually give us resistance profiles, but not necessarily in real time. So there may be significant challenges. And I, I was going to bring up the deep, deep sequencing also. I was wondering whether that would be considered. It's still not going to be perfect. Uh, it's not going to tell us every possible resistance mutation that is in the latent pool of the donor. Right. Uh, but it's certainly a big step. Yeah. to getting the information that, that Brian's asking for, trying to predict what the best uh, treatment measure would be for the recipients. Um, 
I, I was really curious. Um, <coughs> higher rejection rate in HIV-infected individuals for all types of organ transplantation, and it persists over the lifetime of the recipient. Um, so I was really intrigued by the uh, broad, non-specific immune activation uh, in HIV infection, yeah. even when one is uh, appropriately treated, uh, as an underlying cause for uh, for that issue. Um, so that's actively being. That's actually so. What happened in the original NIH trial? <coughs> That, so UCSF planned the original U01, and they're actually driving now the Maraviroc trial as well. There were so many questions to ask, and I think most people were really curious about just the, whether there were going to be a lot of opportunistic infections and bad control and sort of general outcomes and rejection. And this was a really big surprise, how high the rejection rates were. And so they... Our patients who were on this trial had to donate extra blood all the way through. And so they then went and they had a variety of labs throughout the country that they had sort of planned some additional studies with. And they've gone back and they've looked at pools of cells. But the problem was that because that hadn't, some of it had been planned, but not all of it had been planned, they didn't quite get the samples that they wanted and the samples over time. And they're, they're, is a lot of questions. You know, there remain a lot of questions, and so I think in the rewrite, the new protocol, they've really put a lot more of that up front um, because the original trial wasn't really structured to answer some of these questions because some of them were really kind of surprising. And so they're, they're trying now to assess this. And I think also with the new population, we were so overwhelmed with the burden of hepatitis C. And for many programs that were engaged in this, the outcomes in hepatitis C were bad enough that some of them had to stop participating in the trial because their centers said, if you do any more hep C positive livers, you're going to drive our outcomes so far below what's you know, acceptable that we won't be able to transplant. Anyway, so now I think with hep C, we're all just treating the patients. You know, I mean, we're treating them before, in some cases treating them after, but treating them with EAAs and, you know, there'll be probably a lot more data, but I think um, that will really help to answer some of these other questions. But um, there was a lot of hepatitis C making life more complicated. I, I think it's going to be the most interesting part of this. And it'll be especially interesting now if we talk about using HIV-positive organ donors to see what that does driving immune activation. You know, because certainly the data that... Elmi has some early data looking at that because after her initial, I don't know, her second pass through and she started to do the third pass of doing this, she actually met with some of the folks at UCSF and some... And, 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 um, MGH, and they, they actually have now designed some prospective looks that I think we'll learn more about when the data becomes available on her positive, because she's probably still going to have the largest experience doing this. Um, well, some of it's related to infection of a new organ. If it's coming infected, maybe the rejection rate will be lower. Yeah. She had 22% rejection rate in her group. 
But again, there was a lot of issue about immune suppression choices. And initially, she used a lot of protease inhibitors because of cost considerations in South Africa. And so she didn't want to spend as much money on the transplant because there was so much backlash that she used a lot of protease inhibitors, which meant the drug pharmacokinetics were really messed up in terms of calcineurin inhibitors. And so some of her rejection may, in fact, have been that. Now she's getting away from that as people are more accepting. And actually, they're starting to acknowledge both the need for treatment of HIV in South Africa as well as the availability of dialysis. And so it's a little less desperate, and she can do some things a little different way. Like